This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Sports and Ortho Physical Therapy. I'm here with Dahlia Fami, owner of Sports and Ortho Physical Therapy, where they specialize in rehabilitation of police and fire. Hi, Dahlia. Hi, Vince. How are you? Thanks for having me back. So what do or what can our members do to come in and see you guys? Really easy, Vince. They just call us up and make an appointment. So, and I can guarantee they won't be disappointed. And usually people definitely learn a lot about their bodies while they come see us. Uh, Sports and Ortho is a private practice specializing in the care of police and fire members. You can look them up at sportsandortho.net. Call them to make an appointment. Dahlia, thanks again for being here. One last question for you. What if it's a work injury? That's a good question. So you can still ask for us. We're part of the City of Chicago Workers' Compensation Network. So there should be no issues if we are requested. Thanks, Dahlia, for being here and educating us about the importance of prevention. Always a pleasure, Vince. Thanks. Okay, well, welcome back to Chicago's Bravest Stories. Our uh, guest today is Chief Gary Ludwig. He's uh, currently the uh, Fire Chief of Champaign. How are you, sir? I'm doing good, Vince. I hope you're doing good. Oh, yes. Beautiful day here. And uh, just so far, it's been a great day. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. If I was to spend all the times going through your accomplishments and accolades, we'd probably use up the entire time of our podcast here. So I just kind of want to touch base w- real quick. You you are currently the chief of Champagne. You were a former chief in St. Louis and in Memphis. And I think in total, 42 years in the fire service. Is Am I close? Actually, 44 years. <laughs> and uh, uh, actually, um, and I just got my paramedic license renewed. So I got 42 years in as a paramedic. So, Okay. Well, I mean... So you definitely, uh, nobody's going to claim that you don't have any time on the job, that's for sure, huh? No, I, I would <laughs> I would think that uh, I, I'm past my rookie stage at this point. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm laughing because when I started in St. Louis, you know, the only thing they trained me medically to do was how to control bleeding and how to take a pen apart, a ballpoint pen, and stick it in someone's throat if they were if they were choking. So, um, so I, uh, you know... It was uh, a little short time later. They sent uh, a bunch of us to EMT school, and then some guys went on to paramedic school, and that's when I decided to go ahead and get my paramedic. And um, that was 42 years ago, and it was at that time it was only like a six-month program. I mean, it's it's been crazy, Vince, the stuff that has come about in our profession since then. When you look back in your 42 years as a medic, what really stands out as the biggest change that you can that really comes to mind for you? Well, you know, I, I, it's, the, it's the technology that has, has brought it about. And uh, I, I can go through a list of different things that has occurred. Because, you know, when I, when I started, we had mass trousers. I got a picture of uh, me with a rescue company, and, and I got no gloves on. Uh, we're using an air splint, and we got a, a wooden backboard. Did you and, actually use the and, mass and, trousers? 
Yeah, I have actually used mask trousers. Wow. In the past, yes. <laughs> and uh, we would, uh, you know, and uh, you would put mask trousers on the patient, and uh, you know, and the theory was it's going to compress their legs and squeeze the blood up into the more vital areas of their body. So yeah, I got a, I got a list here. If you just give me a second, I'm going to read you the things that I have seen come about uh, in my 42 years, and that includes uh, moving from three lead EKGs to 12 leads. Um, we have we have saline locks now, mechanical CPR compression devices, CPAP, measuring the pulse oximetry, wearing of gloves. When I started, we didn't wear gloves. Writing patient reports, uh, writing patient care reports on a computer tablet instead of paper. Bluetoothing our data from the monitored defibrillator into the computer tablet. Uh, the wearing of body armor, hands-free defibrillation. We used to defibrillate people with our hands and paddles. Stretcher loading systems, new adjunct airways other than innovation. We have the gel airways, you know, we have the King airways. Uh, we have entitled CO2 now monitoring. We have rapid sequence innovation, interosseous infusions, pacing, cardioversion, ultrasounds, ventilators, video lyrisoscopes, and just a whole host of new drugs. Those are just some of the things that I have seen that I put together a list of in the, the 42 years that I've been a paramedic that have, have come new about in our profession. It's crazy to think about um, that the technology has just the advancements in technology, but the basic goal is the same. And if you, that's just the technology part. If you think back, you probably have forgotten more drugs that you used to push back in the day. And we've really, at least in my system, have simplified it down to a handful of core medicines that we use. Exactly. And, you know, and if you look at it, the majority of drugs that we're using are still cardiac related drugs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, we're, you know, we have the albuterol and other things like that, that, that we use for other things other than cardiac necessarily. But, but, um, yeah, we've, uh, we, it's amazing to see the transition, the evolution that has occurred within our profession back in my day, you know, just like when you watch running Roy, uh, Roy and our Johnny, and, I'm sorry, Johnny and Roy on TV, uh, they had to call uh, medical control to get permission to do everything, right. and uh, it was always the it was two amps, two amps in a bicarb. That's how you started off a cardiac arrest. Uh, now, so obviously those algorithms have changed now, but um, that was exactly what we were going through back in the late '70s and the early '80s when I got my paramedic license. Well, it, I think back, and I think back when they were doing the amp and the bicarb. All the science suggested that that was the best way to mitigate a cardiac arrest, right? And now I think yeah, about we were, when, we, if we, what are we going to think about how we're doing treatment now, you know, in another 20 years, we're going to look back and be, oh man, those guys, they would just sit there and push epi all day on an asystole or uh, something like that. I, I can't even imagine what's going to change 20 years from now. No, I, I, I always think about the future. Um, and you're right. I we used to push two uh, two bicarbs, two amps, uh, you know, two bicarbs and an epi. And the thinking was that their body was, you know, acidotic. You know, their lactic acid was building up, and you give the bicarb to neutralize the pH. You know, so that the epi worked in a more optimal environment. But you're right about the future. And, and I don't know if you know, they are working on what they call these Lazarus drugs. You know, Lazarus from the Bible, where he was raised from the dead, and they're they're working on these types of drugs that supposedly. That you know they're going to bring people back to life and, and and restart the heart and not even have to defibrillate the future with the with the theories on some of these drugs. I 
Vince, I actually believe that the firefighter paramedics that are born today, the ones that are born here on June the 17th, 2021, that, that in the future, they will never drive an ambulance or a fire truck, that we'll have autonomous driving fire trucks and ambulances. And you'll get in and you'll have a whole plethora, a whole myriad of these screens in front of you that are sending you all kinds of data from the patient and uh, from maybe some type of wearing device, the watch, the, the watch that's on their arm and they're sending data to you. Uh, you know, these are some of the visions of what I think we're going to see in the future. And you'll be studying these computer screens inside the front of your ambulance or in the fire truck or you're in route to a fire and maybe there's a drone that's been dispatched ahead of you, ahead of you and it's, it's hovering over the incident itself and sending you video images and doing a 360 before you even get there. I, you know, the, the thoughts are you know, just beyond uh, comprehension sometimes when you think what may occur in the future. Well, I, I'm going to have to t- um, tend to agree with you on this subject because if you think about what you're uh, your Apple Watch can do now. You're, you can get an EKG and stuff like that, and you can be monitored through your Apple Watch. I don't think we're we're that far off. We're not. There, uh, there's a uh, 16 billion dollars that has been allocated to Congress right now for next generation 911, and uh, it's going to help develop these technologies of the future, including interface interfacing with video and text messaging, and and I would suspect also with the watch that's on your arm that can also be uh, you know, transmitting some type of bio information through 911 to you in the cab of your ambulance. In your opinion, because I, I know I know you have a, a, a long career here uh, with EMS as well, do you think that's going to be more work or even beneficial for the end user, which is the street paramedic? Is it going to make his job or her job easier, or is this going to be more time consuming and more that in more data input than paramedicine. I, you know, I don't know if technology is a bad thing. You're right. We're going to, it's the same way. Now I could write you a letter and you might get one or two letters a week from somebody, but I bet you got at least 50, 60 emails today, which has made you more busier. So, um, so technology uh, can increase your workload. But at the same time, it can also streamline and create efficiencies. And so I think the trade-off is there. You know, I forgot to tell you one more thing I predict in the future. They're going to have a hoverboard that's going to be a backboard, just like in the movie Back to the Future, where, uh, you know, where uh, uh, McFly is floating on the hoverboard. You've seen those movies before on Back to the Future? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so I think we're going to have a hoverboard in the future. There'll be a backboard, so you don't have to worry about picking it up and hurting your back anymore, so... Well, I mean, even that technology is within my career has changed dramatically. Now we have the mechanically operated uh, stretchers, which is a huge help. The trade-off is to move them around. They, now they weigh a ton, but you just don't have to lift them as much. Exactly. But it, but it's getting them onto the stretcher that, that is where you hurt your back potentially. On a, you roll them on a backboard and you got to lift them up to the stretcher. And there is a stretcher loading system, but it's that movement from the if they're laying on the floor or, or whatever, you got to move, put them on the backboard and move them up if they're injured. That's where. So I predict in the future you'll have hoverboards that uh, that the hover backboard will just lift the patient and put them on the stretcher for you. If we can speed that technology up, I would. Uh, <laughs> I'd appreciate that because that is the most miserable part. Like in car accidents and what have you, you know, you have a person on the ground, you're going to board and collar that person, 
but the hard part is getting them from that that ground position which is an unnatural lifting position for anybody you know your average guy is 200 pounds exactly so anyway the yeah i think the future is looking great and i think i yeah, there's going to be no more technology, which might increase some of our workload, but it's also going to streamline our workload also. Answer your question. This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Dunning's Poorhouse, located at 7718 West Addison. Yeah, up on the state's northwest side in the Dunning neighborhood. Um, they This place is just... it reminds me of home it is your traditional neighborhood chicago bar up on the northwest side um they've got everything you can think of when it comes to local drafts um they've got obviously your standard miller light great cocktails the food's incredible um i mean and and just the the establishment itself and how about it well let me tell you what our uh standard order when we go there uh to eat with uh, the big group always two sheet pans of nachos their nachos are amazing and they have this pasta dish there that is ridiculous it is so good like i just sit there don't talk to anybody just start pounding my my pasta and having a glass of whiskey i was gonna say i I hear pairs very well with whiskey (laughs) (laughs) it's uh yeah i mean again there's i've never eaten a thing there that i've been disappointed with that their food is just incredible and again, to find great food along with someone who could who could uh, concoct a real nice cocktail or have great local drafts, I mean, it's hard to fight going to this place, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think their new advertising should be 10 good-looking girls and one, eh. <laughs> Dunning's Poorhouse, guys. Uh, again, 7718 West Addison. And uh, again, you can find them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Yelp. Go check them out, guys. Do the do the new tagline, Corey. <laughs> I, I can't do that. <laughs> Dunning's Warehouse. I kind of got uh, a hold of you because I was interested in uh, one of your books, and you're you're an author that has several books under his belt. And the one I, that caught my attention was your new one, 401 veteran firefighter, um, uh, can teach you. And can you, like, can you walk us through that book? Would you? Yeah. So, um, yeah, as you said, the title of that book is 401 things veteran firefighters can teach you. And it's firefighter tricks, uh, firefighter tips and the tricks of the trade. And so, so, you know, what I have done over my career is, you know, through a 44-year career, you acquire different things, uh, you know, a certain set of knowledge that, that uh, are tips and tricks of the trade. And and not only have I developed these, but other people have. You know, I, I, this book is not only my ideas and my thoughts, but they belong to others also that, uh, that I've been taught or they have told me about. And so I've compiled them into 401 different things. And uh, the first chapter deals with rookies, you know, what to teach your rookie on the first day in their fire station. Uh, the second chapter talks about construction. Um, but, you know, you go back to the rookie. Um, you know, one of the things you want to teach them is uh, they don't take the, the seat that faces the TV at the table. You know, that's reserved for the more senior firefighters. Uh, you know, there's, there's uh, about 80 different things in that first chapter on what to teach your rookie. And, uh, and, and that's just, you know, that's simplistic, but that's one of them. 
Um, you know, the, there are other things that I'm kind of scanning through the book now so I can kind of talk about some of those things. But, you know, uh, uh, backing up apparatuses, uh, you know, the um, uh, hints to leave firefighters when you're cleaning. You know, you ever go into a hotel and you know how the maid folds the little triangle on the toilet paper? <laughs> yeah. You know, and stuff. So, uh, you know, you got to clean as a rookie, you got to clean the bathroom. So just leave a little hint. You know that uh, you know by folding that little uh, that, that little triangle, let them know that you've been there. You know, and <laughs> there's other things, other things like that. You know that um, you know at some you know as you know some firefighters will throw a little dime or a nickel behind the door to see if you actually are vacuuming behind the door. Uh, you know, there's other things in there like you know if you get time to lean, you get time to clean. If you get time to swipe your phone, you have time to wipe. So just all a bunch of things like that to teach a rookie in their in their first year. And it's, it, but the bottom line, it's about, as I say, teaching that rookie to be part of a team and not be a slug. I think I don't think any of us in our profession want to have a firefighter that we work with that's a slug. We want high energy. We want you to come in when you come in to prove to yourself that you're worthy to be a part of our team. And we want to see high energy. We want to see professionalism. We want to see. Uh, we want to see enthusiasm for the job. So a lot of that is in that chapter and how to demonstrate that. You know, you're going to be on the, on the microscope uh, your first year. And, uh, you know, I talk about firehouse lawyers. The other thing is you need to be the first one up in the morning and you should be making the coffee. And you should be the last one to bed each night. And it's all in that first chapter. Go ahead, Vince. You were going to ask me a question. I wanted to know. Did you get some of these tips and stuff from other veteran guys that, you know, you have uh, history with? Yeah. Let me turn my radio down. Um, yeah. Um, yes, I did. So it's not only myself, but uh, people that I've worked with in Champaign, people that I've worked with in, Cham in uh, St. Louis, people in Memphis, Indianapolis, uh, even some Chicago firefighters that provided me and other people around the country. So, so it's a compilation of not only my tips and tricks of the trade, but also from others too. And, uh, you know, there's a chapter on, on, on engine companies. There's a chapter on ladders. There's a chapter on training. There's a, uh, let me get to the index here. There's, there's a, a variety. There's, I think there's 13 different chapters on the whole thing. So there are, uh, like I said, there's a compilation of 401 things. When we get into construction, you got, let's talk about Chicago. We, you got a lot of masonry brick structures in Chicago, just like we do in St. Louis. And uh, there's a there's a whole section in there on how to read masonry brick walls, on uh, you know on on how structurally their structural integrity, how strong they are, um, when they might collapse. There's there's little tips of the trade that I tell you veterans have taught me. Ghost signs, as an example, Vince, you know what ghost signs are on the side of a building? Oh, I do not. Okay, so you've probably seen those old buildings in Chicago. I know they're in St. Louis, and I know they're in a lot of old cities. I got them here in Champaign. They're masonry brick structures, but they got the advertisements on the sign from back in 1910 and 1900. And you've seen those signs before, right? Yeah. On the sides of the building. So those are ghost signs. And and just looking at that ghost sign, if you're at a fire at that building, you can tell the structural integrity of that masonry brick wall if it's been touched in the last 80 years or not, or if it hasn't been touched, just by looking at the quality of that ghost sign. And then, you know, you're also reading those walls. You're looking at whether there's smoke oozing through those walls, if there's any water coming through those walls. One veteran taught me how to stand at the corner of the building and look straight down the wall on both angles. 
you can tell what areas are bulging, what areas are not bulging, if it's, it's structural integrity. Again, you want to make, make sure we stay out of the collapse zone. Been too many firefighters have been killed over the years from uh, the collapse of walls. And, uh, and so there's a whole section in the construction uh, chapter of this book that deals with just reading uh, ordinary brick constructed walls and, and, and seeing what the dangers are. Um, again, being able to tell if there's imminent collapse or not. I'll give you another one. You know, if you, you know, the cornerstones that are on the building that are telling you what, what year they were built, it was built in 1964, 1946. You know what I'm talking about? The cornerstones on yep. the corner of the building where the, so anything built before 1932, that's in the book here, you can just, you have to be naturally suspect of those, of those buildings because they have not been reinforced. It was 1932 when there was a tremendous earthquake in Long Beach, California when a lot of the schools that were made of brick actually collapsed because they weren't reinforced. And so they changed the building code to make sure that they reinforce ordinary masonry brick structures. And, and so because of earthquake, but the end result was it also benefited us in the fire service in the fact that those, that those masonry walls, those buildings were reinforced in some fashion. So anything before 1932, any buildings built before 1932, um, you have to be very, very cautious of those buildings. Because not only would the wall collapse, but potentially the floors could collapse very easily also. So there's just a lot of tips in the book um, that deal with construction. And, uh, you know, we, what you talk about, I know you lost a paramedic firefighter up there in Chicago. That, uh, he fell down an elevator shaft in the building that was under construction. Yeah, we just had a, so, the anniversary yeah. of that. Did you? Yeah, and just a terrible loss for your department. But, um, you know, we talk about, the, the traps that you have in buildings that are under construction or buildings that are doing renovation and uh, just all the challenges you have with that. There's a, there's a section of the book that talks about that. It, you can't treat those like any other building, obviously, because of the fact that you have holes in floors, you have, um, you have uh, natural uh, fire breaks that would have be, uh, you know, a two hour wall rating, a wall might be gone. So you have better spread of fire. Uh, just a whole host of things. The standpipe systems might be out. The list of things goes on and on. So um, it just there's just a just a ton of cool tips in this book about different things. When I was going through it, it it, it looked like a very easy read as well. I, I think we like to keep things as simple as we can when we come to the fire service. <laughs> so I just tell you, you know, Napoleon. I don't know if you know the story behind Napoleon. He would. Um, he would have a corporal always uh, shine his boots when he was getting a briefing from his generals about the battle plan. And when the briefing was done, he would look at the corporal, corporal who was shining his boots and ask him, do you understand this? If the corporal said yes, then Napoleon was good with the battle plan. <laughs> if, if, the, if the corporal didn't understand it, he would tell the generals to go back and rework it. <laughs> so you're right. Keeping it simple uh, is the best thing to do. Well, you also have two other books and Blood, Sweat, Tears, and Prayers. Is that your first one or Fully Involved Leadership? Is that your first one? Uh, so the uh, the first one, Blood, Sweat, Tears, and Prayers, uh, where I talk about uh, working. I, I get 35 years between St. Louis and Memphis. And so, uh, you know, it's just a bunch of war stories, which a lot of us can tell. Uh, but I, I kind of wrote that book not only for people in our profession, but I really targeted people outside our profession. And I want them to understand what we go through on a daily basis, the things that we see and the things that we deal with and the challenges that we have, you know, and the pain that we sometimes take home 
and experience. And so I want them to have a deeper appreciation, people that are not in our profession, uh, for what we go through and the sacrifices that we make, uh, including a lot of times, you know, we, we miss Christ- Christmases. We miss, uh, you know, other birthdays, softball games, uh, football games of our kids, uh, baseball games, you know, and just that's just minor inconveniences that we experience compared to the other things that were our challenge in our careers. Well, I think in uh, the job that we do, I would think that just based on my experience that if it was a game I missed or, you know, we've all done it, we've missed a major holiday here and there. If that's what you can, that's the biggest thing that you've had to sacrifice doing this job, I think you're doing very well. I think there's way more challenges and, you know, not to simplify what you're talking about, but there are some people who, and we've talked a lot about mental health on this podcast, that there's more light being shed on the mental health aspect of what we do. And I think that now we're just starting to chip away at it a little bit. And when you're, you know, with your book here, you're trying to um, shed some, some light for other people so they can kind of wrap their brain around what it is that that people do in the fire service. It, it might help with bridging that gap between a civilian who is for all intents and purposes have been sheltered from that type of thing to the frontline people who are dealing with the public on a daily basis. Exactly. It, it, they, you know, the, the best question and you probably have heard it before you're at some party and somebody learns you're a firefighter or a paramedic and you know, the, here comes the atomic bomb question. Let me What's get the worst to... <laughs> thing you've ever seen? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Am I, am I right? Uh, 100%. I've, I've said this on another podcast that uh, don't ask us that question. You know, don't. Exactly. Uh, why would you want to put somebody back through if it was in fact, and whatever they tell you, if they're, if that person is actually going to tell you the story, I guarantee you 100% that that's not going to be the story that is their worst call they've ever had or the worst thing they've ever uh, seen. So exactly, don't put that person through that that experience again. If it exact, if it indeed was the worst thing that they ever saw or ever did or ever came across, why would you want to put them through that again? Yeah, through that trauma again, they're reliving that all over again. You know, there's there's a section of St. Louis, a highway there, Highway 55, which runs all the way up to Chicago. But you know, I can't go a half a mile from one end of the city to the other without looking where I've been on some horrendous, horrific call during my career. Um, each half a mile or so, uh, it, you know, there's a memory there of some horrific call, you know, that I'm, and I won't go through all those horrific, I'm not talking about minor fender benders, I'm talking about horrific calls, including one where two guys are riding down uh, the highway on their motorcycle, and this is before they're on their way to work, and before they have the guardrails in the middle, and some van crosses over the highway and turns on its side. And uh, these two guys wind up in the, they crash right through the windshield of the van and wind up in the van with all the people. And I won't go through all the gory details, you know, but one of the people, one of the motorcycle guys was decapitated. I can't go past that spot without thinking about that every time. And uh, so you're right. Why, why ask us that? And why put us through that trauma again? So, but it, it's, it's inevitable. We always get that atomic bomb question when you're out in some social gathering. I can totally appreciate what you're talking about on the highway because for me, 
there's nothing I dread more than the overnight call onto the highway for an accident or something mm-hmm. like that. Because it's all or nothing with those. Neither it's going to be a minor fender better, no injuries or whatever, or it's the most horrific thing ever. Exactly. So, yeah, and, I, and, I, I dread and, those. And, so, yeah, I got to ask you a question, Vince. Would you rather be in a building fighting a fire or standing in the middle of a highway with cars whizzing by you? A fire for sure, 100%. Exactly. <laughs> Without a doubt. I mean, it, it, you ask any firefighter, they're more scared of being on the highways. Uh, they feel more at risk on the highways than, than they are actually fighting a fire in a building. Because of, 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 you know, just the distracted drivers and, and uh, you know, the, the the number of engines that have been hit because they've been used as blocking tools and, you know, it's just, uh, it's scary on the highway. And you add in like Chicago or St. Louis or Champaign where there's an ice storm going on on the highways at the same time. Brother, it's game on, you know. It's like it's like a skating rink out there. Oh, it's, it's, the worst is when there's no traffic and now you have cars that are literally flying by you at 100 miles an hour. That, that gets exactly. really scary. I get so paranoid exactly. being, on, being on the highway. That, and I defy you. To watch how many people are actually looking at their phone when they go by you. Oh yeah, check that out sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that, it's it's terrible. I did want to gloss over the fact that um, you were also the president of the International Association of Fire Chiefs. I'm the past president. I just ended my term last August of 2020. They're one-year terms, and so I was the president from uh, August of 2019 to August of 2020, and. So there was a minor thing that occurred during that time, if you might recall, it's called a pandemic. <laughs> and you, you uh, were driving the ship during the pandemic, huh? <laughs> yeah. So I was president of the uh, of the international during the pandemic, and uh, I can tell you, it, and then the civil unrest after that. So it was literally 14, 16, 18 hour day, seven days a week, from early in March all the way past uh, probably late July, dealing with the just. The list of things, I would take me eight hours to explain all to you, but dealing with uh, the federal government and the states and making sure our firefighters had enough PPE and vaccinations. I testified in front of Congress. We, I don't know how many times uh, we, we went on TV with, with uh, on national news, on radio stations. Um, the list of stuff goes on. And again, just dealing with FEMA. Uh, I don't know how many different federal agencies I dealt with, including the White House. Again, all in the interest of trying to make sure that our fire service was getting the proper amount of funding, uh, that we're getting the right PPE. As you know, we couldn't get PPE early. Um, the, what was coming out of the strategic national stockpile was not going to the fire service. It was going to the hospitals, and that's fine. But, you know, but but as I said, as I used to tell people, there's, how do you think those patients got to the hospitals? They got there in the back of our ambulances. Yeah. And so— um, so it would, it would, it, we could actually do another podcast on this if you ever want to do that. Vince. there's just the intricacies of dealing with all that at this level and, and just fighting. We've lost at this point 180. I get this. I, I still get the weekly numbers. We've lost 182 firefighters and paramedics to COVID so far, job related. It looks like they're mostly job related, you know. And uh, I'd like to have it at zero, but and it just breaks my heart that we're at 182 right now as of last week, and. Um, but, you know, and maybe maybe through not only my efforts, but other efforts. We had, you know, the IFF working on stuff. We had other agencies working on stuff. It just wasn't me. I had plenty of staff at the IFC working with me. It wasn't a one-person team. And I'm thinking maybe through all our efforts, we were somehow able to 
get that number down from 500 down to where it's at now, the 182. We'll never know how many firefighter lives and paramedic lives were saved, but you know, I'm, I'm hoping it's a significant amount. Hey guys, uh, you know what? We're just gonna talk a minute about this awesome beer we've been drinking from Illuminate Brew Works. Um, right now, I'm I'm drinking Trust, and uh, this thing is it's just a really good lager. Um, we're going, we're kind of running the gauntlet here. We got some uh, we got some awesome beer here, so we're just running through each one of them. Uh, I tried Vince. You tried that Orange Sunshine too, right? Orange Sunshine is my new favorite summer beer. Yeah. Thanks to Brian at Illuminated Brew Works. If you guys are looking for an amazing craft beer, and, you know, I'm not a big craft beer guy, and I was a little hesitant, and then when we started popping yeah. these things open, uh, it was like Christmas. Yeah, we, we've been firing pretty good on we, these things. We, <laughs> we, we've been going through these yeah. like so, crazy. Bar Chicago's Bravest Stories is doing all right over here. Right. Well, the Illuminated Brew Works beer has saved us from drinking all the whiskey that we have here because... Uh, We've been drinking more beer than we have whiskey. It might not even it. be whiskey guys anymore. Yeah. Um, and uh, that Creeper one was pretty good too, right? Once Creeper was it. good. And we're fresh out of astronaut juice. In yeah, there. if we had astronaut juice, that is my top one uh, from these guys. If you're looking for an amazing craft beer, you can find it at Benny's Norwood Park Wine and Spirits Beer Temple, which is right down the street here from the studio. So if you're uh, picking up some Illuminated Brew Works at Beer Temple, stop in, have a drink with us. Bottle and cans, uh, Capones, Totos, and Ryan's, Rayans, R-A-Y-A-N-S. Yeah, these are all bars they're selling in. And uh, you guys would notice it for sure once you walk in because they've got some really cool artwork on each of their cans. Um, so, again, just, just look for the, the eye-popping uh, artwork that you're going to see, and they'll kind of lead you over it. Again, this is Illuminated Brew Works. Make sure to check out anything that they've made so far because everything I've tried has been awesome. Oh, it, it's really good. If you go to uh, that place, Wine Styles, at 6182 North Northwest Highway, you can pick it up. And coincidentally, that is right next door to where the new brew pub is going to be. Illuminated Brew Works is opening up a brew pub at 6186 North Northwest Highway. It's going to be amazing. The beer is amazing. And we are also asked to mention that the new Brony is coming back out. It's a double hop IPA. So for you IPA guys, the Brony is coming back. But the the beers that he has in stock right now are amazing. Uh, Illuminated Brew Works. Thanks, Brian, again for uh, you know keeping us in beer here. And you know when our guests come in and stuff like that, we give it to them as well. And we've heard nothing but great things from uh, our guests who've uh, walked out of here with a four pack of uh, Illuminated Brew Works. Thanks, guys. Again, make sure to check them out. Illuminated Brew Works. If there's anything that we can do to help champion that cause we'd be more than happy to because it directly affects us and the the two other guys that do this podcast with me you know i i work the uh the covid rig here for chicago back in the beginning of the pandemic and our sole responsibility was just to respond to uh respiratory wow. runs and you know they had to meet the criteria to send us fever and uh respiratory distress and possible uh travel outside the united states and all this and uh so yeah you know we were knee deep in it and we we had all the ppe we we could carry which was you know we got taken care of very well by you know our department 
And, um, you know, I'm very grateful that, you know, we were given the proper tools to do that job. But I know a lot of the departments didn't have that. No, they didn't. I I talked to fire chiefs that were buying ponchos and raincoats and anything that they could get to protect their people. They didn't have PPE. But God bless you for what you did to be, you know, throw you right into the mix like that, that you're actually dealing with COVID patients. That I'm not talking about maybe that you are the bona fide person dealing with COVID patients multiple times a day. God bless you. I'm, I'm so glad you're healthy. Believe me. Well, I, I am, I, know. Uh, I, I believe that was through the, the help of our department and my, my bosses, uh, who took care of us and the way that our logistics department took fantastic care of us with decontamination of the rigs and the preparation for getting the rigs and our equipment ready and sterile for each and every day. You talk about a team effort, you know, just trying to get to the pandemic. And this is something that we hadn't had to deal with. You know, we had maybe the Ebola scare a couple years back, but that didn't really affect us and we didn't have to utilize anything or, you know, change policy or anything like that for that. But, you know, this was uncharted territory for us and we were kind of making up our procedures as we went. So uh, hats off to uh, my department for really stepping up and taking care of us in that regard. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, and that's good to know because I'm telling you a lot of I, you wouldn't believe my I, you know I, I think I would lay down at twelve o'clock. Someone I think I'm gonna get a few hours sleep and bing, someone's texting me at two or three o'clock in the morning about some crisis where some fire you know some fire department they are you know they got half the fire department out with COVID. They're actually shutting down fire stations because the leadership was not progressive enough and not aggressive enough to deal with these issues like your department was. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it was so disappointing and uh, the challenges we had, but I'm so happy that that uh, you're healthy. And I know there was a couple of, uh, you did lose a couple of firefighters there in Chicago to COVID, um, but I, I don't know if that's necessarily because of anything your department did not do. It's just, it might be the circumstances that were surrounding that. Cause those were early on in the pandemic, if I remember when you lost one yeah. was at the airport, if I remember. Yeah, it, w- um, it was early on in the in the pandemic for sure. And that's when we're seeing most of our losses. Is that we? You're right, Vince. We didn't know how to deal with it. We we kept hearing it was aerosol aerosolized. We heard that you know that it hangs in the air for four hours after you're still there. Yeah, I mean, you remember all that stuff? We didn't know what the what the heck was going on with this disease, uh, this virus. Yeah, and, and, and uh, the contradictory it, information, scientific information, would, depending on who you listened to, you didn't know what was right and what was wrong. I, you know, I, I don't know if it was like in Chicago, but I'm with, you know, when I would go to St. Louis or here in Champaign, early on, I'd go to work in the morning. There, wasn't a, there was not a car on the street. People were sheltered in their houses. That's how scared they were. And because of what was being broadcast, did you see the same thing? One hundred percent. We downtown was like a scene from Walking Dead. It would just be homeless people down there, especially during like the business day, where our population grows four times uh, during business days in Chicago, uh, just from the downtown. And when that is completely removed, it it it's eerie. You'd go down there, and yeah. you know those busy downtown rigs. Those guys, they were the slowest rigs in the city. 
Yeah, I, that is amazing because, like I said, but that was because nobody knew. We were, we were getting such conflicting information out about everything, and so nobody knew. But, you know, I've, I've been to your wonderful city multiple, multiple times, and uh, it's just absolutely beautiful. And, uh, I, 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 you know, you're probably way younger than I am, but I was a, worked as a consultant for Chicago Fire back in the 90s. The company hired me to come in and help on some issues where you guys hired you. Brought, brought a consulting firm in. And like that was the days of, uh, you probably remember Larry McKaitis. I don't know if you remember or you've heard his name before. I've he heard it. One yeah, of your, uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Larry was, uh, he was a chief paramedic, and then he became, what is the top EMS person? Is it the first deputy assistant commissioner? I'm trying to remember what the, well, we have, the uh, top. Yeah, I mean, we, we have, uh, you know, our uh, EMS boss and then a district chief and so on and so forth. But... I also wanted to, before I forget, you have been a big advocate for fire-based EMS. And that's correct. Uh, is now when you started in St. Louis, you were 18 years old. I was 18 years old. Yeah. And did you come on as a firefighter or an EMT, or what was your position when you came on at 18 years old? So uh, I was on, I was in a government program were the uh, federal government program, a jobs program, where they train you to uh, as, as a firefighter. Or, and so sometimes you're on the fire truck and sometimes you're on the ambulance. And, uh, and back then, the training was very minimal. As I said, they put you on an ambulance, and they, the only thing they taught you how to do was how to control bleeding and stick a pen in somebody's throat if they were choking. <laughs> and and uh, it scared me enough that I remember one of my first calls when I was assigned to an ambulance was in the, the housing projects, uh, one of the housing projects in St. Louis. It was um, uh, kind of like what your old Cabrini, Cabrini Green would be like, you know, where you have a whole bunch of federal housing, uh, how, or a whole bunch of federal housing units, I guess that's the best way of saying it. They're eight, nine, ten stories tall. Right. You know, as, as we've learned, that social experiment did not work. And so I think they've torn them all down in most of the major cities. But we had those in St. Louis also. And one of my first calls was uh, on the fourth floor or fifth floor of a housing project for some lady having a baby. I didn't know how to deliver a baby. I was 18 years old, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, we're walking up these inner stairways or all these concrete stairways in the middle of the summer, and uh, it smells of urine. It's a terrible smell, and, uh, you know, we get her on the stretcher and take her down and take her to the, the, the city hospital. It was a, a hospital run by the city in St. Louis, and, you know, I'm pleading with the driver up front to turn on the lights and sirens. Let's go, because she's getting ready to deliver his baby as best I can tell because she way she's screaming. And um, he says, you're fine. Just sit back, kid. And I'm just, I thought, my God. So anyway, so that was one of my first experiences with no training in the back of the ambulance because they didn't require a license back then. then what, in Missouri. When you were in these, um, this uh, community here, the um, like your Cabrini Green type area in St. Louis, it was multi uh, stories, correct? Yeah, they'd be, they range in from 8, 9, 10 to 11 stories. And as you know, you, you didn't want to ride the elevator. Well, that's what I was going to get to. As a brand new guy on your very first run, did you make the mistake of getting in that elevator? Uh, no, because I was working with older guys who knew that you don't ride the elevator. <laughs> you definitely so, do not uh, do that. <laughs> nope, we didn't ride the elevators. And, um, and uh, so being the new guy, I guess back then, you probably never heard of it. We, you probably started, I don't know what life pack you had when you started. or And we had a life pack four, which weighed like 42 pounds or something like that. 
back in the day. So guess who had to carry that up the steps all the way to the ninth or tenth floor? So, and uh, it was in a light pack five like that, like you might have seen. I don't know which one you've used, eleven or twelve. You, we, you when out, I started in Chicago, we had the twelve, and we've gone 12. to the fifteen now. Okay, well, we had a four. Go look it up. <laughs> I think they weighed forty-two pounds or whatever it was, and so guess who had to carry that up all the way to the eleventh floor? And you would get up there and find out you didn't need it. So, uh, you know, it was just, uh, it was only three leads. And, uh, but yeah, you never rode the elevators um, in any of those federal housing projects like that. Well, that's, that's a lesson I learned the hard way uh, when I was in paramedic school. And uh, that would be for another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other thing is, you know, you didn't park your uh, apparatus close to the building either because, a lot of times you might get a refrigerator or a stove thrown out on top of it also. So, yeah, th- so I mean, uh, that, that should be another book for you is the things not to do in these federal housing units. <laughs> you could make a, well, they, a they, there's 401 lessons to be learned just in that atmosphere alone. Yeah, but, you know, you, you got poor people and, uh, and the federal government is trying to come up with a solution to help poor people for housing. And... Um, you know, they, they, they thought that was the answer, and it, it's a terrible answer. You can't put that many people together and think that it's going to work out. It just it just doesn't work like that. And um, so, you know, thankfully, a lot of these housing projects have now um, been dismantled, and we got low low income housing for people that is decent, and 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 uh, you know they should have a decent place to live. And um, those things were horrendous. You know, they were all made of concrete. If you got to fire one of those things, oh my God, you know, it, it was like being in, in, in some type of oven because there was no release of any of that heat at all in a concrete structure like that. So I don't know if you ever fought a fire in one of those things or not, but my God, you know, that's, it's just, you know, I remember a guy, um, God, he got his ears burnt real bad uh, and didn't, you know, just because of the heat that was in that thing. So, um, well, the, some unique challenges in there. Yeah. You all the open spaces within those buildings are all caged in as well. Exactly. So anyway, but yeah, so yeah, it was that was my first call, and uh, and that was you're a, you're a kid from you know South. Grew up, in, I grew up in South St. Louis. Uh, I could go to the third floor. I would grew up about a mile west of the brewery. It, as the crow flies, you know, if the wind was blowing the right direction, I could smell the the barley and the hops brewing down there, <laughs> and. Uh, I could go to the third floor of my house. It was a three-story brick and open the window and I could see the lights of Bush Stadium in downtown St. Louis. Uh, they, we were that close to the, on the near south side of St. Louis. And so so here's this 18-year-old kid from, you know, south St. Louis. And, you know, my first day I'm thrown uh, into the, you know, into the housing projects on the fourth floor. And, and my eyes were wide open. And so it, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I have worked with so many awesome people. You know, throughout my career, that, it, that it, it, it would take me a week to name all the people that I've worked with. They were just been phenomenal and awesome. You started your your fire service career where you're you're basically a, a, a department with a jump company. How did you wind up getting off the ambulance and functioning as a, a firefighter? So I got I got promoted to paramedic captain pretty early in my career. Uh, I was actually 20 years old, so about two years into my career, I got promoted to paramedic captain, and uh, and so uh, which was a pretty cool job. Uh, I had one one half of the city. There were two of us on shift, 
and I had one half of the city. And so, uh, so um, each shift, you know, I was running my side of the city, and if something very bad happened, I would wind up on the other side of town, also helping the other person. And so, uh, so that that actually, after about two years, you're off the trucks and you're you're off the ambulances and that sort of stuff. And and, and that was the role I was in for for quite a few years before I got promoted again. Then. Oh, so uh, that would be basically the equivalent for us in Chicago, our assistant deputy chief paramedic. They divide the city north and south. Uh, at really? Okay. Yeah. And then from there we go to our field chiefs, and they're divided up into their districts north and south. And then uh, within the, the ambulance themselves, there is a commander, and then each shift is – each other shift uh, is going to be a uh, paramedic in charge and a fire paramedic. Yeah, I because I remember doing the consulting work up there, um, and they brought me in to look at the fire-based EMS system up there and make some recommendations. It was a company called Trite Data. They they would they would you know go out and find subject matter experts to do those jobs, and so that was uh, my role was the fire-based EMS system in Chicago would come in and make some recommendations. Now that we have now that we have you here, I mean. This is many, many years ago. What what were your recommendations for us? But I'm, I'm one, I, I, I have to go back because that was the 90s and try to find that report. But I know one of the things that struck me the most was the need for more ambulances. <laughs> you um, the unit hour utilization uh, was beyond, you know, was beyond where it should be. And when we start talking about fatigue factors and other things like sleep deprivation, um, things that when you had, a, I don't know if you're still doing it or not, but back then, even if it was a patient with a minor event, you know, if they were just, you know, say, I don't feel well and, you know, and I've been running the cold for a week, you know, those type of calls, mm-hmm. you guys are running them urgent back to the hospital. I don't know if that's still going on or not. Yes, there there is no, there is no like, um, like low priority transport for us. Okay. And so. You know, that was a, to me, that was a big concern because I, I thought that was a risk management issue. Think, think about running lights and sirens back to the hospital with someone who, uh, again, says their toe has been stubbed. And, um, and, I, and I, I don't, you know, the, the rationale was I was told, well, we got to get these ambulances back in service right away. Yeah, that, and, that's uh, what I and, would say that playing devil's advocate would be the reasoning for that is we're already short. You know, we need to turn around these rigs. And get back in the service. Exactly, and so that was what I was told. And and so, why are we risking firefighter paramedics' lives? You know, why are we in Chicago running urgent with a stubbed toe back to the hospital, or maybe even hitting a van full of a family, you know, of five kids and a husband and a wife, and maybe killing them potentially? So, you know, the answer is to increase the number of vehicles on the street. And, and and have a proper unit hour utilization of your vehicles. And so, you know, but I, as an administrator, I can tell you the balance is where does the money come from for that? Yeah. And uh, and so that is that is the challenge for your leaders in Chicago is how do you how do you how do you do that when they also have to maintain streets and parks and a police department and and uh, a dog catcher and all the other things that are required in Chicago? And, uh, you know, we, we in the fire service think, well, the priority should be with us. We should get all the money. But, you know, as a, as an elected official in the city, they got to look at the whole picture right. and figure out how we make this city work. And, um, and so then your commissioner has to figure out, you know, these are the dollars I got to work with. How do I make it work? And they have to come up with the policies 
that one of those policies might be that we have to run urgent back to the hospital so I can reduce my average length of time that the ambulance is out of service on the call to get it back in service. I don't know if you have hospital wait times there or not. A lot of cities are having horrendous wait times uh, in the emergency rooms where you're on a wall, uh, you know, for four hours or three hours with a patient waiting for a bed. I don't know if that's a if that's, if that's going on in Chicago or not also. We do uh, from time to time, but uh, we're at least where I work, the hospitals are very good with, you know, getting us in and out. Uh, when you talk about turning around ambulances and the need for more ambulances, I would almost venture to say that the need for more ambulances isn't outweighed by how we should be handling these calls from the alarm office. Um, I think if we had a way to uh, remove the liability for what they do at the alarm office, and just from the calls that I run, a good majority of them aren't, I don't want to say worthy because it's all relevant to the individual calling, but there's not the 100 percent necessity for a 911 response for a good majority of runs uh, that we are dispatched to the city. And I think that if you just put more ambulances out on the street, that just is the opportunity for us to respond to more runs that aren't a necessity. So I think Correct. that that has to start from the alarm off, from the call taker to the dispatcher. And I think if there was some way, and I don't know the answer to that, you know, I'll leave it to guys like you with uh, 40 plus years uh, of trying to sort these things out. But I don't think if we had a hundred more ambulances out there, yeah, it would put a, a good dent, but we have ambulances now in the city that are running 30 calls a day. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So you're absolutely right, Vince. I, you know, when I made that recommendation back in the nineties, we didn't have alternative delivery care models like we do now. And so a lot of communities are saying, okay, you know, this model of sending, you call 911, we send an ambulance to every call and a fire truck to every call, that model doesn't work anymore. So a lot of communities are coming up with other alternatives, uh, including putting this, uh, they're putting nurses in the dispatch center um, that will actually screen the call. Houston has an excellent program and I'm going to Google it while we're talking here, called Ethan. And I actually went down, I did some work for the Houston Fire Department as a consultant also. And um, and so they they are actually doing, they have a doctor in the communication center. And I mean, Houston Fire, hold on here a second. Um, and, um, and so you can call by camera from the scene. It's called Project Ethan. E Ethan. And uh, Ethan stands for, I was trying to see where it, how it's written, how it stands for, but um, I think it's emergency. I'm trying to see what the cost, what Ethan stands for. Of course, I can't find it this fast. But so the doctor's in the 911 center. And so you get to a scene that's a low acuity call, a low acuity call. And, and what you do then is you can call the doctor by camera, and the doctor can talk to the patient by camera. And, you know, of course, you're getting the vitals and other information that you're feeding to the doctor, what their blood pressure is and, you know, maybe their pulse oximetry and other things. The doctor's getting the history. And the doctor says, you know what? You don't need to go by ambulance. Uh, what we're going to do is set you up for a clinic appointment. Uh, and he's got a, a screen there in front of him where 
the closest clinic might be at. And then he's also got a contract that they got a contract with a cab company. And so they'll make an arrangement to have a cab come and pick that person up and take them to a clinic. And uh, they're looking at the clinic schedule where they can fit somebody at the, at the clinic. So they're tied into all these different systems. So they're basically healthcare navigators is what they are. And it's called Project Ethan. And I'm trying to find what Ethan stands for again. So, oh, emergency. Hold on here a second, Vince. It stands for emergency telehealth. I just saw it. Now I lost it. <laughs> um, emergency telehealth, telehealth and navigation. Um I don't know if that's the right acronym or not. But anyway, so I know it's Ethan. I know it's that. I just can't find what it stands for. Um, emergency telehealth, something, and navigation, I think. So, um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's it. Emergency telehealth, E-T-H-A-N, Ethan. Emergency emergency telehealth navigation. So, so that's one example. When I, I did work for Washington, D.C., Local 36, the IFS, up there was having me come in and sit as a representative for about two years. I was flying to DC about twice a month and uh, we would meet at city hall and I sat on a judicial oversight commission for fire and EMS. And so we were looking at all the issues there and, and the IFF local hired me to come in and be the representative for that. And uh, what was interesting was 11% of the calls in Washington DC were generated by 20, they, by 20, the top 25 utilizers. So if you look at the top 25 people who use EMS in Washington, D.C., they they generated 11 percent of the EMS volume of calls. That's crazy. And I bet you and I bet you have super utilizers in Chicago. <laughs> we have super and, utilizers in every district. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what cities have come up with and, uh, you know, MedStar down in, uh, in Fort Worth has worked on this. They start working with those individuals and finding out what are their needs. You know, when I worked in Memphis, I had I had one firefighter paramedic. That's all she did was work with our super utilizers to get them out of the system. We had a lady by the name of Miss Loretta, and I'm sure you know the names of all your patients there in Chicago. <laughs> you know, you're you you know you see them all the time. So we had Miss Loretta. They would call every day to go to the ER because she said she had chest pain. So we're kicking out an engine and ambulance, and she's just trying to get her drugs. Is what she's trying to do. So. Um, the, the paramedic firefighter uh, I had working on that program, our alternative delivery care model, she worked with Miss Loretta. She got her qualified for Medicaid, got her psychologically evaluated, got her medically evaluated, and got her placed to a nursing home that is actually outside of Memphis, maybe about 50, 60 miles. And Miss Loretta, I, I guess to this day, is still happy. She's happy and content inside that nursing home. And we got her out of the system, but she was good for at least one call a day when I worked in Memphis as the deputy chief down there running the EMS system. And uh, so my point is that we need to target these super utilizers because they have needs. If you just tell them at the 911 center, we're not coming, I guarantee you they're going to change their narrative when they call next time. They're going to tell you, now i got chest pain, I'm short of breath. And, uh, and so you're going to wind up sending ambulance anyway. But if you find out what their needs are and get them pathway to someplace else, we get them out of the system and re- reduce the call volume. I like your I like your term uh, super utilizer for regular. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm, instead, of, instead of you know calling you know calling you know uh, uh, what's the other term the uh, frequent flyer yeah frequent flyer uh, regular you know, <laughs> yeah regulars they always got they call them bilateral uh, suitcases you know uh, yeah. 
you know, they both, they got a suitcase in each hand. They're right waiting for you at the corner. So, um, so I, I, the nice term is to call them super utilizers. <laughs> I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> well, you know why we're on that subject and talked uh, about your books and stuff like that. Before we wrap this up, like if you have, uh, you have the ear of a new guy and you want to give him the best advice that you ever got as a new guy, uh, what would that be? Um, my advice would be that there are going to be some days that are going to be tough, but never lose your passion and your love for this profession because it will give you so much and it has given me so much. And, and there's been some tough days and some days you go, you know what, I, maybe I should just go to truck driving school. <laughs> um, but, but, but you know what, Vince, we're in the best profession ever in my mind. Every day we get into our vehicle and go to work. And we get, a, we, get, we get to make a difference in the lives of other people. We, we have purpose. We have the opportunity to make that difference. And we get paid to do it. You know, there's 800,000 or whatever million firefighters in this country that volunteer. They don't get paid like we do. And here we're getting paid to do this. And, um, and so just, you know, when, the, when it just seems bad, that new guy, I'm, my message to you is when it just seems bad and you're on your 30th call of the day, whatever, you know, just, just remember how blessed you are to be in the profession that we're in and what you're doing and, uh, and just take one call at a time and, and try not to treat it as a glass of water because the more water you pour in, eventually it's going to spill out. And, uh, and so you got to separate that out. And that, so that's my advice to that, to that new kid that's coming out on the street. I don't think I could have said it any better chief. And again, I want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast it's always great to have somebody with your uh, your time on to give us a little insight and keep us on track on why we uh, some of the reasons why we keep coming to work every day. So uh, thank you again, and I'd like to reserve the right next time you swing into town, uh, come on in the studio and um, let's, let's have you in here. And because uh, I don't think we scratched the surface with uh, 44 years here. We're just getting started, and let's have you in here for a, a full episode. Hey, this was awesome talking shop with you. <laughs> um, I feel like we're sitting around the kitchen table, you know, in the, in the back of one of those old crusty fire stations and drinking some coffee. And having that terrible coffee. Out, <laughs> yeah, having that terrible coffee, or we're sitting out on the ramp. Yeah. I don't know if you sit on the ramp out there in Chicago. We're sitting on the ramp and just talking and getting some ramp time, as I say. That's in my book also. I encourage the rookies to put down the xbox that's the most that's that's super important getting that ramp time yeah and sit out there with those senior guys and get that ramp time and listen to those stories and learn from them so but i, I thought this was awesome i i love talking with you i love talking shop with you and i would love to come on there again some other time in the future and if i'm chicago i'm gonna come by and definitely see you brother yeah you got an open invitation just let us know when you're coming through and we'll make it happen Again, uh, that was uh, Gary Ludwig with uh, Champagne Fire Department. Thank you again, and um, be safe, Chief. Uh, this is Chicago's Bravest Stories. Thanks for tuning in. The opinions and views are that of Chicago's Bravest Stories and their guests. They do not necessarily reflect the views of any municipal governments, fire protection districts, fire departments, EMS, or law enforcement organizations.